Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's this uh, young couple who took a walk along the coast on a perfectly clear starlit night. And eventually they stroll up over the sand dunes and onto this beautiful, soft, grassy knoll where they spread out a blanket and lay down and begin stargazing. And then one thing leads to another and they start doing what young couples often do, stargazing along the coast on a perfect night as the waves are rolling in. What they didn't know is that the ground that they were tussling around on was a church garden, and the priest of that church happened to be looking out of his parsonage window and sees these two young lovers and, and decides this is the perfect occasion for a prayer walk through his garden. <laughs> and so he walks out of the parsonage directly over to this young couple rolling around on the grass. They don't even see him as he approaches, and so he clears his throat. <clears> throat> And they sit up, quite startled, expecting a rebuke. He leans in, not with a rebuke, but a question. What's this got to do with that? Meaning, what does what you're doing down here on the grass have to do with the wonder of the cosmos up there? And then he strolled back home, leaving them to it. I'm borrowing that story from the Catholic theologian Christopher West. What's this? got to do with that? It's a huge question, isn't it? What do our bodily desires, our hungers, passions, and erotic longings, our most decidedly body-bound desires, what do they have to do with meaning, purpose, and transcendence that's equally written into the human soul? And of course, sexuality is only one aspect of our bodies, but the body is without doubt the most contested place in Christian spirituality. Ethnicity and diversity, gender and sexuality, identity and human rights, all of these things come down to how we view the body and who's telling the truest story about our bodies. The body is, without a doubt, the most contested place in Christian spirituality. And when I make that statement, am I talking about 21st century Western society or am I talking about 1st century Greco-Roman society? Yes. We tend to think that the questions we're wrestling with these days are a new phenomenon, the product of an ever-evolving cultural landscape, but they're not. Uh, the body's always been the most contested place, right from the very beginning. The first major philosophical battle in church history was all about the body. 
Gnosticism, predominantly a second century movement centered around an embodied nature to Jesus and his teachings, was the first great theological tension and continues to be the current great theological tension. A tension that the New Testament writers were familiar with and often speak to quite directly. A tension which we can't just derive a biblical perspective on if we kind of reform a few texts to fit the cultural narrative we're in today, but a tension into which the biblical story speaks fully and comprehensively. Gnostics were people who loved Jesus' spirituality until it became embodied, and that was too far. So they wanted to hold on to the sentiments of Jesus to contemplate in the mind and soothe the soul, but the body, too close. Not only did disembodied spirituality wage war with the way of Jesus first, it's been a pesky fighter, always coming back. The Gnostics got us started, but they were quickly followed by the Manichaeans and then the Albigensians and so on. And others of the same sort who had in common a love and reverence for the way of Jesus and the soul and the mind, but were quick to dismiss a Savior who became as offensively close and as intimately personal as my body. Even just a cursory study of global church history reveals plainly that we are not asking new questions. We might be framing them in new ways, but our questions are ancient. And it is into that tension and that story that we delve over the next two Sundays. God and the whole person, soul, mind, and body in his image. That's the teaching series and practice we've been in throughout this Lenten season. Soul is where we got our start with desire and shame. The last couple of weeks have been on the mind. And that leaves the body for the final two Sundays as we journey toward the cross. How did God make my body in his image? And what strands of deception got into my body with the serpent's lie? And how does Jesus redeem the body? And how do I experience that redemption now, even as I await its fullness in his return? That's where we're headed. But today I want to lay a foundation for us to build on. And I've got one point and only one point. The way of Jesus is an embodied spirituality. But in order to show you that, we need to take a Genesis to Revelation biblical tour that's going to feel a whole lot like drinking through a fire hose. So I figure a map of where where we're headed might be helpful. Embodied blessing, embodied curse, embodied redemption, embodied victory, embodied resurrection, and then embodied blessing again. Those are the six stops we're going to make along the way. What's this got to do with that? What is the human body along with its biology and erotic desires, ailments and fragility, various shapes, sizes and pigments? Well, what's the human body got to do with the grand story of meaning and purpose and life? What's this got to do with that? Here we go. Embodied blessing. Did anyone see that Disney film Soul? Oh, I loved it. Partially because I spent most of my life to date in New York City, and I do have a soft spot for Blue Note Jazz, but mainly because of that one scene near the end where Joe's soul reconnects with his body, and suddenly he realizes how good his ordinary life is and the precious potential that's packed into every single moment. I really liked soul. There's this one thing about it, though. It's that a good part of the film happens in some heavenly place where everybody has become a blue blob floating around in the clouds somewhere high above. And that's how most of us tend to think of heaven, but that vision of the eternal has nothing to do with the Bible. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible's opening page. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jump right to the very next chapter. Then the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, if you read the Bible's first two chapters back to back, you'll notice that they're not one comprehensive narrative, but the same story told from different perspectives. Both are narrative, but Genesis 1 reads a little bit more like poetry, and Genesis 2 reads a little bit more like prose. So think of it like this, my son Amos, we just celebrated his first birthday a couple of weeks ago, and if I told you the story of his life to date in a poem, then it would be a sweeping story told very briefly of that year aimed at beauty. But if I told you the story of his life through prose, it would be a more detailed story over the course of that year aimed at drama. Now which one is true? Both. They're the same story, just told from different angles. And that's how Genesis 2, 1 and 2 work together. Genesis 1 says man and woman are set apart from creation because only people are made in God's image. Genesis 2 then breaks down the method of creation God used when it came to his image bearers. Every other created thing comes just from a word from his mouth. But when it came to people, his image bearers, he used more careful craftsmanship, forming them by his hands out of the dust and breathing into him the breath of life in his image. And as Genesis 2 rolls forward, God commissions Adam, his first image bearer, with a job. God parades all of the animals in front of Adam, tasking him with naming every last one of them. Now, why is naming the animals interrupting the creation drama? Why is it wedged right in the middle between man and woman? Because God is letting Adam feel his own deep longing, the longing for a partner, a counterpart, a bride, to put it in biblical language. God lets Adam feel his divine longing, and then by seeing every created thing, God also allows Adam to search for fulfillment to that longing in all of creation without finding it. The first task assigned to the first human being was one that allowed humanity to feel isolation and a longing for union. Creation all around Adam is good, but Adam is alone, isolated. God's only act of creation to that point without a counterpart, night and day, Land and sea, man and... The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, helper is likely the word that you're immediately drawn to and you probably don't like it. You wish that Yahweh had gone with something different, some more dignifying term when describing the creation of woman. So you should know that helper is the Hebrew ezer, and it's a bit of a clumsy word to translate into English, and it's neither derogatory nor subordinate. In fact, helper appears again and again throughout the Christian scriptures, often in reference to God himself. You'll find it used that way in Deuteronomy and Hosea and the Psalms. So no, this isn't a derogatory or subordinate term, and it's not the word that should be jumping off the page to you. The word I wanna draw your attention to, and the word that poetically fits into the flow of the narrative is suitable. And I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the English suitable comes from the Hebrew konegdo, which is a compound word made up of ke, meaning as or like, and neged, meaning opposite, against, or in front of. This word most literally means something like as opposite him, or like against him. So here's the point. This word holds together both similarity and difference. 
Eve is like Adam because she's human, not an animal, but Eve is opposite from or different from Adam because she is a woman, not a man. Finally, God creates Eve, to which Adam's response is this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It is bodily terminology that pours forth from Adam. Adam discovers his counterpart in Eve, man, his communion with woman. Now, very quick but important side note here. I've been using male terminology related to Adam prior to the creation of Eve because that sounds more logical and it's much more easy to follow in English. But to summarize what very well could be a whole sermon just on its own, there's a very strong, clear Hebrew reading of Genesis that indicates that God created humanity, split humanity into man and woman, and then humanity created as one, split into two, is then called to reunite again as one. So, on the Bible's opening couple pages, here's what we observe. One, people are set apart by God's image. Two, people are unified by God's design. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Humanity created as one, became two, and then reunites as one. Now let's slow down for a second here because there's a pattern at play that is very essential to the whole story. God's creation is made up of like but different corresponding parts. Night and day, land and sea, man and woman, connecto, connecto, connecto. Do you see it? You follow the rhythm that lives underneath the creation story. There's this repetition of like but different parts on each day of creation. And God's creation is at its most beautiful when like but different parts are unified. Riding out COVID-19 in a 900 square foot apartment in New York City with a family of four was a grind. There was this one part about it that I'll never forget, the evenings. In a city with no private outdoor space, when the sidewalks that I was used to fighting my way through are suddenly empty, there was this one time every day when people would emerge from their isolated cocoons and into the city park. And they were not there to look at the city skyline. What's the most beautiful moment of the day? The moment so beautiful that people often stop just to gaze. It's the sunset, right? When night and day are unified when like but different parts come together. And what's the world's most expensive property? I mean, the the place that you pay mansion prices for a shack and then make your money back in just a year because you're renting this thing like crazy because everyone flocks here for a little bit of R&R. It's the coast where land and sea come together where like but different parts are unified. You see, there's something in the human soul that is drawn to Connecto. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Because God's creation is most beautiful when and where Connecto parts come together. A phenomenon most completely represented in the overlap of heaven and earth in a place called Eden where like but different parts, heaven and earth, are unified. A unity that was driven apart before we ever really got to know it in its wholeness. A union that will be redeemed when and where we will finally be made whole. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. First, embodied curse. 
Genesis 3 is where conflict enters God's iconic design, and you know the story. Adam and Eve are deceived by a lie from a serpent. They step outside of God's design, and it fractures both their unity with God and their unity with one another. And it's important that you understand that the serpent is a creature, not a creator. And that means that our spiritual enemy has no creative power. His only method for destruction is to distort God's very good creation. Think of it like this. The serpent has no clay to play with. All he can do is distort God's clay. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It is the twisting and distorting of the good. And when Adam and Eve bought the serpent's deception, that's what happened. God's clay got twisted and distorted. And what follows is really interesting. The first thing they noticed was their bodies. Before sin, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. After sin, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first thing sin made people notice was their bodies. They were naked and now they knew it. Nothing has changed and yet everything has changed. Both of their bodies were the same as they were before sin, but now, uh, instead of blessing, Curse is the lens through which they see both themselves and each other. Naked and unashamed has become naked and ashamed. And so they hid. They hid from God in the brush and they hid from each other behind fig leaves. The isolation that Adam felt in naming the animals now returns and becomes constant. You and I live in the very isolation that God called not good. In the words of Christopher West, ponder this for a moment. If the union of the sexes is a sign in this world of our call to union with God, and if there is an enemy who wants to separate us from God, where do you think he's going to aim his most potent arrows? If we wanna know what is most sacred in this world, all we need to do is look for what is most violently profaned. Is there any more contested ground in the human person these days than the body? than how we view the body and who's telling the truest story about our bodies? And might that be more than just the shifting opinions of an ever-changing culture? Might that be the same deceiver still telling the same sort of lies? What I want you to see here is that disconnection from God disconnects us from our own bodies. In the word of, words of Rich Velotis, more than just feeling guilt or existential dread, Adam and Eve find themselves in shameful estrangement with their bodies because of a strange relationship from God. From this point on, the human experience is marked more by using than by communion, more by destructive separation of the body and soul than by body-soul unity, more by a paralyzing preoccupation with our bodies rather than a holy unawareness. To sum it up, our bodies are perverted by a powerful root of shame. The mission of God is to restore the order of love that was deceived by sin. Uh, the way that we see ourselves and each other as fully uh, known and without shame again, it lies at the foundation of that order of love. All to say the body is not a footnote at the bottom of the way of Jesus. The way that we understand our bodies is central to the way of Jesus and to the renewal of the whole world. If the destruction of everything good came from the twisting and distorting of God's clay, then the redemption of everything good comes from the untwisting and distortion of God's clay, restoring it to its original original form. And that brings us to part three, embodied redemption. 
Now, as the biblical drama unfolds from there, I would say it's really important to pay attention to the first couple of major movements in the biblical story, which we'll call covenant and exodus. First covenant, God begins his redemption, but he doesn't start by saving souls. He starts with the human body, with offspring. Abraham and Sarah, an elderly, infertile couple, are told that they will not only have a child, but that they will become the father and mother to a whole nation of children. And Genesis 15 calls that a covenant that God forged with them. Now let's rewind back to Genesis 3, to where sin interrupted the story. God, naming the manifestations of sins cursed, which would be experienced bodily by both the man and woman, says that in the body of the woman, the curse of the serpent is pain in childbirth. That's how it gets translated into English, at least. But if you study the language, the Hebrew word is heryon, which refers to conception. It's a word aimed more directly at the pain of infertility than pain during delivery. So when God begins his redemption, he doesn't start by saving souls, he starts with the human body. He starts with the reforming of his distorted clay, directly combating the consequence that was named just a few chapters before. He promises to make an infertile woman whose life has been defined by the curse into the mother of a family so large, nation is the word for it, a life redefined by blessing. So a woman whose life has been defined by the curse will now be redefined by blessing. In place of a bodily curse, God bestows a bodily blessing. That's where redemption starts. And then Exodus, Exodus chapter three, the the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When God makes his first really public, dramatic redemption statement heard, not just by a few pious Jews, but by the nations, he doesn't send Moses to evangelize the enslaved Israelites so that they will one day know life beyond their torment. He sends Moses to deliver them, to free their bodies, to experience bodily the redemption of their souls. And that's important. Because in the modern West, we tend to have a bias toward ideas. We often ignore the interconnected nature of the mind, body, and soul. But your soul and mind are embodied, meaning they are housed in your physical self, and they depend on your body in order to function. We are both shaped and misshaped by experience. Uh, The soul, mind, and body work together to shape us. In the modern West, we tend to overemphasize the cognitive, assuming that our thinking is our becoming, right? I think, therefore I am, which is why new information and insights seamlessly leads to my formation, right? Guys, loosen up, (laughs) right? Are you guys tracking? Man, it's cold as ice in here. Honestly, I thought Bethany had warmed this place up. I think you did a great job, Bethany. I'm really sorry for the behavior in here so far. Let's see what I can do from here on out. In all seriousness, uh, thinking is part of our becoming, but it works together with the other essential parts of the human person in order to shape us. 
And that's why God's first major movements in redemption include the whole person, the soul, mind, and the body. Because we are both shaped and misshaped by experience. And so to reshape what the serpent has distorted, God makes his appeal to us at all three levels. And then later comes a collection of books of biblical Hebrew poetry, which include a particularly sultry volume called The Song of Songs. A book that would make a supermarket romance novelist blush, snuck into the biblical canon. And there's been a divide among scholars between, is the Song of Songs a volume of erotic imagery depicting the love between a man and a woman? Or is the Song of Songs an erotic allegory about God's pursuit of his people, his bride? And the answer, of course, is yes. yes. It's both. As it says in Ephesians 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. A direct quote from Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, in the biblical story, the body, including or maybe even especially the body's expression of sexuality, of eros or erotic desire, is iconic in the language of the Eastern tradition or sacramental in the language of the Western church tradition. It is a sacrament like the bread and the cup that Jesus gave us that we'll taste today. What is that? It's an earthly sign of a heavenly reality. It is a visible, tangible sign that we can interact with of a, of a divine promise that we are given. An earthly picture of a heavenly reality, a visible sign of an invisible truth, God's desire for his people. From creation all the way through the prophets, the Old Testament is making the provocative claim that the body is not only biological, the body is theological. Night and day, land and sea, man and woman, it is all designed to point to this beautiful promised coming union of heaven and earth. As it says in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. All of creation, and that includes me and you, our bodies are windows to look through at the glory of the artist behind it all and the story that he is writing through human history. What's this got to do with that? It's starting to seem like quite a lot. How are we doing? We're right here between the Old and the New Testament. I know it's been quite a lot. Honestly, that's the most Hebrew words I've ever tried to pronounce in that amount of time. Tim coached me beforehand. I still didn't feel confident. We good to keep going? I hope we are, because this thing's about to take its most dramatic turn right here, okay? Embodied victory. Now all that brings us to Jesus and I wanna slow down the pace of the story here just a little bit to look at the birth, life, and death of Jesus through the lens of the body. So first, birth. The world's great religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they all trace their roots back to the biblical book of Genesis and a promise made to this couple, Abraham and Sarah. But the dividing point from Christianity and the other two is that God became a person. God took on a body. Q John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
everything in the Christian faith, it hinges on this phrase, and the Word became flesh. Everything in the Christian faith hinges on the miraculous birth of God as an embodied person named Jesus. Ours is an enfleshed story, and we have never escaped the temptation to want to unflesh it. But to do so undermines this story of its power to unflesh or to disembody the biblical story, turns it from a powerful reality into a powerless sentiment. The theologian J.I. Packer makes the argument that it is the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, not the resurrection of Jesus, that is the key point at which the biblical story gets defined. Because if God took on a body, then it naturally follows that he would open the eyes of the blind and walk across water and even push back his own tombstone. But without the incarnation, all of those events become a whole lot harder to believe. Mikhail Awuna, an African-American artist, did a series called Infinite Essence based on the black body. His inspiration was, quote, this is my response to pervasive media images of black people dead and dying being gunned down by police officers, drowning and washing up on the shores of the Mediterranean, starving and suffering. The trope of the black body as a site of death is everywhere. He hand-painted the skin of his subjects and then using ultraviolet light took a photo so for, for the span of a flash of a camera, each of their bodies looked like this. Slowly, deliberately hand-painted each one, all so that for a second they could see themselves like he saw them in his imagination. And when he showed the final product to each subject, some of them wept. When some of them saw themselves the way the artists saw them, not the way the world saw them or the way they learned to see themselves, they wept. You see, to glimpse yourself through the eyes of God, it moves you to tears. It's like this homesickness for an identity that you knew at first, but it got snatched away from you before you ever really got to feel it as home. To see yourself just for a moment in the eyes of the Creator, that is the only plot in which the incarnation of Jesus makes sense. God took on a body because it's really hard to be loved by a doctrinal statement. Right? Sin left us with a need for more than just information. We need pursuing love, and that's who Jesus is. We believe in the birth of Jesus, and that is to believe that the universe is God's creation, and his great passion is to heal and redeem it. But it's also so much more personal than that. To believe in the birth of Jesus is to believe that I am God's very good creation, and his great passion is to heal and redeem me. That is why God would come in human form. He dignifies our bodies by living in one. He dignifies our pain by feeling in himself. And at the end of all of it, he says, when I see you, I still see what I saw at first. Would you bear to believe me when I say that this is who you are? That's the birth of Jesus. And then there's the life of Jesus. When Jesus spoke publicly about the human body in God's image, he points to the past and to the future. So let's take those one at a time. First, there's the past. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gets approached by a few priests asking a theologically sticky question about the proper terms for divorce. But Jesus' answer goes far beyond just the question about divorce to show Jesus' view of the human body and Jesus' reading of Scripture. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, 
and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. Now, in the Greek, that's kalaomai. Can you say that? Great, I'd love for you to hold on to that word. And be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So no, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, relax, everyone. I'm not building up to some really definitive statement on divorce ethics here, okay? What I want you to see is that Jesus has asked a question about the body, about falling in and out of love, about sexuality and sexual ethics, about marriage and desire, and the way he answers it by appealing to what? To Genesis, to creation, to Eden, to the beautiful union of heaven and earth, a union of which is painted into the unity of light and dark, land and sea, man and woman. Jesus appeals to God's original intent for naked and unashamed, fruitful and multiplying human relationship before the, de the deception of the serpent. That's interesting, isn't it? And as the story rolls on, we come to Jesus' view of the future. So if you keep reading, just two chapters later, there's a different group of priests who approach Jesus with a different but equally theologically sticky question about marriage. And this one has to do with human romance and how that interacts with eternity. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So then they cook up a wild hop hypothetical. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. In other words, you are missing the forest for the trees. You are not framing the question you're asking within the broader story that Yahweh has been telling. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now again, there's plenty here that we could discuss, but for our purposes today, what I'm trying to show you is this. Jesus has asked a question about the body, about falling in and out of love, about sexuality and sexual ethics, about marriage and desire, and the way he answers it is by appealing to what? To resurrection, to recreation, to Eden's return as a garden city, to the reunification of heaven and earth, to God's intent for naked and unashamed, fruitful, multiplying human relationship after the serpent's deception is eradicated and eradicated for good. That's interesting, isn't it? And wedged right in between these two theological pop quizzes, Jesus tells us a story, a story we mostly call the parable of the wedding banquet a story about what heaven is like in the way of Jesus. He paints a picture of heaven that looks like a wedding feast, a picture to say, here's where your desires are going to be ultimately, fully, and finally satisfied. 
your sexual desires and your companionship desires, your food and drink desires, your let go and enjoy the weekend desires, all of the very good God-given desires which have been planted in you as a part of his image, uh, which can be channeled toward life or twisted and distorted and channeled toward death. I'm talking about that cocktail of bodily desire that is forever swirling around inside you and me, vying for our attention and never satisfied. No longer if I'm satiating those desires or I'm renouncing those desires or something in between. Those desires, says Jesus, will be fully satisfied in me when you're united to me, when you're feasting with me. It's a provocative image. And it's an image that means something for our bodies right now. It means something for the bodily desires that you meet in this life. The food that you eat and the drink that you drink, the healing that you receive and the sex that you have and the companionship you find, Jesus' table means that none of it will satisfy you in any lasting way. The best of your satisfaction in this life does nothing but give you a foretaste that should prime your appetite for his table. And it means something for the bodily desires that you don't meet in this life. For the food and the drink that you don't indulge in and the healing that you ask for and never stop awaiting and ultimately endure suffering in the meantime. It means something for the sexual desires that you defer and the companionship you live without and the mate that you long for but never find. Jesus' table means that all of that unwilled pain and willed self-denial primes your appetite. It gives you an acquired taste for the one and only feast that will satisfy you. The most costly of your self-denial in this life also points to the same wedding feast that's coming. Let's pause here for a second. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you translate between general statements and very personal stories? And would you speak a message of love to each one of your children in a way that no preacher ever can? Would you come, Holy Spirit? Show us Jesus' table and teach us to desire it. Okay. And then there's death. And Jesus died in a body and his body was laid in a tomb. Sin is more than an intellectual problem. Sin's consequences are in our bodies. Sin's disorders get expressed through our bodies. Sin's ultimate outcome is the death of our bodies. Jesus dealt with a bodily problem by taking on a body, and he dealt with it with his body by taking my suffering and yours on himself on the cross. He took my death and yours to make a way through death and into life. In Jesus, God took on a body. He came in a body, lived in a body, died in a body, rose in a body, reigns in a body, and will return in a body. Part five, embodied resurrection. Jesus goes to great lengths to prove to his disciples that he really did rise in a body. Have you ever noticed that? Like he'll walk through a wall and show up in a room they're in and then say things like, do you guys have a bite to eat? Somebody give me something to eat. I wanna show you that I really am a body, like digestive tract and everything. It's as if he's saying to them, And to us, I'm not a spirit, but I'm sending you my spirit. 
As it says in the book of Acts, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus goes to great lengths to prove convincingly that he really is alive. Why does that matter? Well, because, spoiler alert, the biblical story doesn't end with Disney's eternal vision of blue blobs floating around in a disembodied bliss, but with heaven coming to earth and the resurrection of our bodies to live forever in a garden city. Heaven, according to Jesus and the biblical authors, is not an escape, it's a renewal. The renewal of the world and the renewal of our bodies. Heaven is an embodied reality. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that our heavenly bodies very well may be different in form than our earthly bodies, just like a plant is different in form than the seed that grows it, though the substance is identical. And then we're told in Revelation that that heaven is made up of people of every nation, tribe, people, and language, and so we know that ethnicity is very much embodied and visible in the same way that it is today in the heavenly reality. So while there is some mystery to the form of this embodied redemption, what we know for sure is that the substance is embodied. Heaven is life forever and life renewed and life in a renewed body, just like he designed it at first. And in the meantime, as we await that full and final redemption, he has filled our mortal bodies with his very life, with his spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And that word united is the Greek kalaomai. The very same word Jesus used to describe the union between man and woman or husband and wife, Paul uses to describe the union between his Holy Spirit and our flesh. I told you to hang on to this word. Pope John Paul II, who's known for his theology of the body, summarized the critical distinction between Christianity and other religions this way. Religion tends to place an anti-value on the body. But Christianity teaches that the body always remains a value not sufficiently appreciated. If other religions teach that the body is bad and must be overcome and transcended, Christianity teaches that the body is so good, we have yet to fathom it. The biblical story and the church community that is shaped by that story is not offensive because it mitigates or dismisses the body. If anything, it's offensively dignifying to the body, charging our embodied choices with such meaning that their impact ripples into eternity. There is no more dignifying view of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, of the sanctity of life, and the tragedy of death than the one you'll find in the way of Jesus. If the embodied biblical story offends you, it's either because one, it hasn't been properly represented by the fallen people that Jesus invites into his family by sheer grace, Or two, it holds such a high view of the body and the person that you can't bear to believe it. Those are really the only options in the story, and they always have been. The body is so good, we have yet to fathom it. Part six, embodied blessing again. I really liked that Disney film, Soul. There's just this one thing about it, though. It's that most of us think of heaven as this place of disembodied bliss, and that vision of the eternal has nothing to do with the Bible. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. See, the biblical picture of the end, it's not one of disembodied bliss, it's embodied love. It's the wedding feast that Jesus promised and, and gave us a picture in our imagination of in his first arrival, he brings in reality in his second arrival. And it's a love that speaks to our bodily desires. Jesus returns to set a table that satisfies. And it's not a table that satisfies because we eat from it and get full and never hunger again. It's a table that satisfies us because the courses never stop coming. It is a satisfaction of our desire, not a quenching of our desire. And there is a difference. And it's not just any kind of feast. This is a wedding feast. Jesus has come as a groom to live forever with his bride. He has come to romance you, to want you in all the ways that you've always longed to feel wanted, to delight in you, even if you can bear the biblical imagery, to consummate his union with you, that union that you taste in moments of transcendent divine encounter even now. The poetry of the Song of Songs becomes a reality in his return. And that picture of heaven, of a wedding feast, it's given to us as a place that we can direct the full weight of our bodily desire right now. So that a bold glass of red wine, or a dinner to die for, or a song that makes you wanna dance the night away, and yes, even the sexual union of man and woman, all the desire that we gratify in this life, it should only whet our appetite for that table that's coming. And, saying no thanks to a drink, or fasting from food, or living single or celibate. All the desire we defer in this life should only whet our appetite for that table. That picture of heaven, a wedding feast, it's an image that the early church took so seriously that they commonly set aside uh, wedding or even sexual imagery right alongside the communion table. So our practice this week is feasting. We come to the Lord's table together in our Bridgetown communities weekly in homes all across Portland to taste this feast. And each week as we come and we dip a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine, a single taste that symbolizes the whole meal that we share, we're fine tuning our taste buds, aiming our desire at Jesus' table that truly satisfies. And this week we're gonna do that a little bit more slowly and a little bit more intentionally, a little bit less like a nibble, and a little bit more like a feast. So if you're not in a Bridgetown community, the way in is through basics, which we'll offer again in the spring. If you are in a Bridgetown community, I'm just saying, get ready to feast. God's creation is at its most beautiful when like but different parts are unified. Night and day, land and sea, man and woman, Holy Spirit and human body, heaven and earth. Written into our bodies is the meta story of cosmic redemption. Our bodies are iconic. They are sacramental. They are windows we look through to see another reality. What we do with our bodies tells a story, the true redemption story of the whole world. What's this got to do with that? Everything, everything. Yeah, but 
Like all that's true and all that's beautiful, but what on earth does that mean for work and diet and fitness and aging well? I mean, what does it mean for racial and ethnic division and the ongoing inequalities based on the body that I'm in that I didn't choose? And what does it mean for healing, the miraculous and medical sort of healing I receive in this life and the healing that I await but never actually get? And what does it mean for gender identity and sexual orientation and sexual ethics? What does it mean for marriage and celibacy and singleness? If God uh, wrote that story, the, the meta story of the whole world into the body, what on earth does that mean for the uniquely beautiful and uniquely painful story I'm living in my body? To be continued. <laughs> We'll pick up right there next week.